Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited to be bringing you episode 21 of season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and migrant resistance in these southern Arizona borderlands. It breaks down case law and leftist politics from a leftist perspective as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. Yvette Borja prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. Thank you so much to everyone who listens and supports the podcast. If you end up enjoying this interview, if you are appreciative of what the podcast brings to your life, then a great way to support the podcast 100% for free is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. So whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it's amazing every time you all leave five stars. Thank you to the two folks who left five star reviews on the Apple podcast since I last recorded. Thank you so much. See, I truly noticed, like, I count them. <laughs> and um, the Apple podcast reading and review is really helpful because it helps make the podcast more visible to people. It's more likely to get on lists where people can find the content here that they want, that critical bullshit-free leftist perspective. And we are well on our way to getting 300 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, so it would be really amazing if we were to get there. Also, another great, 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 great number one in my heart way to support the podcast is to become a Patreon. Um, on patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona, you can donate monthly. For $3 a month, you get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. Shout-out to the two Cachimbona apoyadoras, Sai and Araceli Rivera-Cohen. Thank you so much for your support. And for 5 to $10 a month, you get early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the lit reviews. Currently, I'm reading Custer Died for Your Sins by Vine Deloria Jr. And it's a super important read that's helping me understand so much about federal Indian law. So I'm looking forward to that. And then also, if you want to support the podcast, you can also share the episodes that you like on social media. You can follow at Chimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I hope that you all enjoy this interview that I did with the architect Sibine Sanchez-Diaz of Design is Protest and Raphael Sperry of Architects, Designers, and Planners for Social Responsibility. And we talked about the role that designers can play in decarceration work. They discussed what being an anti-racist designer looks like in practice, how designers can play a role in ensuring that building affordable housing redistributes wealth within communities, and why ADSP and DAP have pledged to not participate in the building of execution chambers or solitary confinement cells. I hope that you all enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast.
Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I'm very excited to have Sibonay Diaz-Sanchez and Rafael Sperry here to talk about the intersections of architecture, design, social justice, and working towards an abolitionist world. So thank you both for coming onto the podcast. I'll introduce you both briefly before we get started so folks know where you all are coming from. Sibine Diaz-Sanchez is a design and project manager at Opportunity Communities in Boston. Her work focuses on affordable housing development and community building. She insists that creative fields are viable vehicles for social change and is committed to prioritizing community voices in the design process. And Rafael Sperry is an architect, sustainable building consultant, and human rights advocate as past president of Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility responsibility from 2004 to 2020. He led ADPSR's national campaigns to boycott the design of prisons and ban the design of spaces that violate human rights. He promotes restorative alternatives to incarceration as a board member of Designing Justice and Designing Spaces, the only architecture and development firm devoted to transforming the criminal justice system. Thank you both for coming on. I wanted to just kind of flag that this is a podcast that focuses on border issues and Arizona and immigration. And so when we talk about these systems, it's actually impossible to not also talk about the criminal legal system. And so that is why you all's work is incredibly relevant and intertwined with the usual immigration programming of the show. So thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having us. Great. So just to get started, I wanted to ask you both, what brought you all to this work of thinking about the intersections between prison design and social justice? Sibine, you can go first if you'd like. Uh, Sure. So, you know, one piece that was not mentioned is I am an organizer with the Designers Protest Collective. Actually, the week that I met Raphael in New Orleans in 2018 was at a Design Justice Summit. And I remember Brian C. Lee asked me how long I had been engaged in design justice work. And I had, you know, I told him I didn't know there was a name for it, which was a really, um, for me, it it was a new space to be kind of around people who were invested in the future of multiple people's lives and the intersections of justice. So I am Latina. I am from San Antonio. We have many missions in San Antonio. You may have heard of of one of them called the Alamo. The narratives of of Texas heroes and Mexican villains is, is still a part of the public education system in the state. And so really, what were the missions, right? Who did they house? And uh, were Indigenous peoples there voluntarily? I think my my interest in questioning historically preserving religious structures, capitalizing on indigenous labor was always a, you know, that was that was always a part of my home. I'm not an expert in incarceration or border detention centers or policies, but I will say my father's side crossed the border and my mom's side did not cross the border. The border crossed them in the distribution of land or the theft of land between Mexico and the U.S. So I think in many ways, my identity is about acknowledging the ways in which people are, are treated for moving in space. So I'll kind of share that. And then a lot of my work goes into housing um, and kind of on what land we're, we're doing that in and how are we redistributing wealth as part of that process. Thank you for that. The architecture of missions and the history of it within the Southwest is very, very important. So thank you for bringing that up. Rafael, how did you get involved in this work? Well, um, I got involved with uh, 
ADPSR, Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility, when I moved to California in 1999, I had an active chapter here that was very engaged in natural building and kind of green building, which was an issue that I'd cared a lot about coming out of architecture school. And then at the same time, or a couple of years later, 2003, I got very involved in protesting the war in Iraq and was asked to join the board of ADPSR. And so I wanted to find a way to connect the issue of the war and peace movement with buildings and the built environment. And through other people in the peace movement, I just I, I learned a lot about um, the war abroad and the war at home. That was a framework that we had to discuss how the same kind of racist attitude towards the lives of people in Iraq was basically brown people in Iraq was the same attitude that we had towards black and brown people in the United States. And overseas, we use the U.S. military, the armed forces, and at home we use the police. But of course, the police is own like they end up putting everybody in in jail, and that's where. Now there's buildings that were part of it. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, what if we could challenge the whole constellation of crime and whole kind of ethic of violence as an instrument of policy and racism through challenging prison buildings? That's something that architects could connect to. And once I then, I, I had that idea, once I started researching the prison system on my own in 2003, 2004, and I was like, this thing is totally out of control. I, I was stunned growing up like a privileged white man where I like didn't know people who were in the system, didn't really like pay much attention to it because it didn't impinge on my day to day. I, I, I was totally shocked by what I discovered about how unjust and racist the U.S. criminal justice system is. And so I spent some time trying to do something about it. Thank you for that. So you went from this place of kind of potentially contemplating how can we design prisons better to getting to a place where you're kind of fundamentally questioning the structure of prison. And you said that actually communities don't need better prison design. They need better community design and more funding for community development. Why is this the case and what does better community design look like? Well, I, I guess why it's the case is because prison designing prisons better is not solving either the problems that communities have about crime and violence. Because if that was the case, it would have worked by now because we've got a prison population that's like eight to 10 times that of other developed countries and we don't have a crime rate that's lower than theirs. So we're not going in the right direction. So it's not working. And in fact, it's a huge injustice in and of itself because the vast majority of people in the United States wouldn't be in jail in other countries because they haven't committed crimes that, that, would, that would put them there. It's because we have a really racist criminal justice system that we've got so many, especially young people in prison, well, old people too, actually. Um, so does, if, it's un, if it's wrong for somebody to be in prison, you can't make it up to them by designing the prison better. That's not correcting the fundamental injustice, which is the massive incarceration rate that we have. So then if we didn't have those people in prison, I mean, they are there because they were lacking certain things, you know, and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever, but we got to create opportunities for them to be in the right place at the right time and have better opportunities. So for that, what do communities need? I mean, this has been something that people have been aware of for decades in the United States. While we've spent billions and billions building prisons, we weren't building public housing. We weren't improving our public schools. We aren't providing people with access to medical care, you know, and mental health care in poor communities. So that's the kind of community development that we need. And that's what it would look like. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Sibine, what does being an anti-racist designer mean to you? That's a tough question, right? But I think part of that practice is asking yourself that daily. And I think even asking the question that, you know, you asked Raphael, what does community design look like? I think that's a part of being an anti-racist designer. Well, I am Latina, I am white on forms and colonialism kind of complicates identity by erasing indigeneity, but my privilege lies in my responsibility to question racist practices as often as I can. 
I, I teach a class called community practice at the Boston Architectural College. Um, and so I, I often reflect on how am I teaching students to understand their identity as privilege and the value of solidarity building and design work and community building. Designers Protest also has something called an anti-racist design justice index. So we created it as a collective and, and it is a tool for architects, designers, planners, policymakers, and community activists committed to taking action towards identifying and dismantling systemic racism within our practices, but also within our organizations, academic institutions, and local governments, because they, it exists everywhere. The goal of the index is to achieve justice and liberation and actually operate, it's organized on two axes. And, and a big part of that is, you know, it goes from acknowledgement to action and from equality to liberation. And it, it's helpful to see a visual. So, so now when people are like, what can I do to be more anti-racist? There's, there's literally a whole index that identifies that in multiple disciplines. And I, you know, you can't act on all of the actions all at once. And, and sometimes you're, you realize you're starting at acknowledgement. Um, but how are you really pushing that? And then I think understanding that being anti-racist is is a practice. And I, I often refer to it in the practice of architecture. It's, it's not a state of being. You have to always be thinking about how you are advocating for others and how you are redistributing wealth and always questioning policies. So those are some references, but I, but I think it changes daily. And I think it's asking that question continuously. I So I wanted to pose the question to you about whether or not you think it's possible to build a humane prison. You know, how are we defining humane? Are, are we talking about natural light? Or are we talking about the fact that your right to represent yourself in a democratic election could be affected after you leave? Neither of those things are humane. Right. So, you know, I, I don't, I mean, one of our demands within the Designers Protest Collective is to abolish carceral spaces. Um, it's really to call on architects to not, to cease the design. Mm -hmm. Right. We're, we're ceasing the design of all punitive carceral spaces targeting right. black, brown, indigenous and Asian bodies and instead create spaces of restorative justice, which is what Raphael has been saying and working towards for a long period of time. I think it's, it's helpful to have language to it, but really we need to we need to understand how we're re redistributing funds. Why aren't we spending more time? And energy on unfunding health and human services. Like I, I, you know, I, it, it just, it makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, so but more so no, sense so the, it might sound. Yeah. So, I mean, is it possible? No, it's not. Is it possible to, to build a humane detention center? No, it is not. Raphael, you've written about how, you know, at first architecture and design might seem like a neutral or an apolitical endeavor, but you know, for example, the choice to construct a courtroom in a dispatch center at the Ferguson police station in the wake of protests asking for the police to stop killing Black people was actually not a neutral endeavor at all. Why is this important for people to grapple with? Well, I think at the first level, like Subane was just saying, like our resources are going to the wrong places. So even if you're being asked to design something that doesn't seem political on the surface, the resources that are going there are, are not resources that are going to the places where they're truly needed to the, you know, to, to, to our disadvantaged communities and the people who are still struggling a lot. And frankly, people who have been oppressed by our systems, we're not trying to right those wrongs if we're just building a shopping mall and building a courthouse. But actually, then when you start to look at the criminal justice system and you're like, oh, we are going to build, it's just, a you know, a courtroom or, or a police station. Ferguson, Ferguson was a place where the police, you know, shot dead. Michael Brown. And then there was also, I mean, and, and then, and then it was discovered that they were like contributing, what was it? A quarter of the budget of the entire city off the back of its poorest residents by constantly like stopping them and detaining mm -hmm. them and saying, well, we're going to invest in that system. 
with our architecture instead of, you know, instead of all the people who've been oppressed just seems like it's adding insult to injury to do, you know, so, so yeah. And I think people, I mean, part of the message of ADPSR was architects are tend to be people with privilege. It's a really white male dominated profession mm. and people have a high level of education. Most of us have a master's degree like myself traditionally it's actually considered a rich man's profession it was kind of like a hobby mm -hmm. when it first started in the united states where people who were independently wealthy and didn't need to actually earn their money through their through their living mm. so it's got a lot of uh, embedded privilege uh, and challenges and it, from that position there's a responsibility to actually care for other people and use that privilege to like right the scales of um, equality and inequality in the united states rather than just working for the rich and powerful because you really need to champ transform what the profession has historically done right and it, it's just something that perhaps if you're not an architect yourself, you just wouldn't think about the critical role that architects play in, for example, creating a gas chamber or any of the execution methods that the state uses. And when you think about it that way, like if every single architect and designer refused to build these things as Designers Protest has promised to do, has committed to doing, then that could fundamentally stop state executions. It could certainly throw a roadblock in there and, and that would be welcome. I mean, <laughs> I feel that personally because I'm, uh, my family's background is Jewish mm -hmm. and there yes. are drawings, which I've seen. They actually had a pretty talented draftsman in Nazi Germany design okay. the um, crematoria yeah. in Auschwitz. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I also saw the 3D model uh, uh, for the California state execution chamber that was completed in 2010. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I got into architecture to make the world a better place. And I think the vast majority of people who join the profession, that, that's what we're doing. We want to make good places for people. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, at least I realized that the tools that we have can also be used to hurt and kill people. Right. And we have to tell our colleagues not to do that. <laughs> Number one, we have to not do it ourselves. And then we have to speak up to make sure that they're used the right way. Right. Sivine, you also do work around affordable housing design, and you've written about how affordable housing design can be used as a way to redistribute wealth. What does that look like exactly? What does that look like? I think we're all trying to figure that out, right? Housing is a, is a human right, and no human is illegal, especially on stolen land, and those are not complex or revolutionary statements. And I think, you know, even going back to, to Raphael's comments about of the history of architecture, Latinas make up less than 1% of licensed architects. And so with those perspectives that are very much about ourselves and how we have operated in the world, there are going to be more, we'll say, complicated themes being brought up in, in scope, like in written scope of projects, right? So I really struggled as an architect, challenging the scope of projects, not understanding why we were not talking about affordability or about community engagement as part of design for public spaces. And, you know, when I was asking questions about scope, it was, it ended up being, you know, the, the argument that there wasn't enough money for it. And so I sort of got into housing because I wanted to be able to challenge what that scope looked like. I wanted to be the quote unquote client. So I work for community development corporations and I hire architects. And a part of, a part of my work is fundamentally changing how we're designing, say, community rooms or, or how we're designing this affordable housing from a quality perspective. And the only way we can really, we can ensure that we are building quality projects is if we're speaking to residents. It's a little tricky when projects are, you know, are affordable. And if they rely on a lottery system, because you're not able to meet your clients before they actually are selected for a project. But 
in working for community development corporations, we have resident services and community building teams. So a big part of my work has been weaving, weaving the connections internally between our real estate development team. I am the only Latina on the real estate development team with the women, majority women on the community building resident services team to ensure that we are actually thinking through how affordable housing is produced. I will say on the on the DAP side, so I'm in the planning and policy committee for Design as Protest, and we've come up with some policy briefs. One of them is about permanently affordable housing. And you know, there there are a lot of points to it, and I can I can share those with you too, Yvette. You know, those who are interested can also visit the Design as Protest website. But one of the things that we talk about is the the homes guarantee, the people's action homes guarantee, and what are the ways in which we're talking about even valuing affordability, right? We talk about AMI, but how are we talking about the accumulated racial wealth? And so it's wealth is generational. And if we're not talking about that in affordability, then we're really doing a disservice to housing. We also, you know, in the in the brief, we we do talk about deprioritizing housing production, reliance on low-income housing tax credits, which is a sort of a problematic, not sort of, it is a problematic way to fund housing. It does not redistribute wealth. And so there's there's a lot more into that policy brief. And so I, I think a big part of my work, you know, Rafa, you mentioned the word constellation earlier in a, in, a, in a negative way, right? Like all these systems are connected, but in, in a lot of my work, it's like, what are the ways in which we're building constellations to support more permanent affordable housing? And how are we defining affordability and for whom? <laughs> and what are the policies that can support that? And are they, do they create opportunities for home ownership? And then what do they look like? So it's all of those things together at the same time. I really appreciate you going through all those challenges and especially how you can't meet your clients before you design the building, because if there's um, if it's affordable housing, there's a lottery. And so there's a little bit of a of you're guided towards um, perhaps looking at communities in a monolithic way or kind of relying on the generalizations that you can create across communities instead of like asking these specific people what they want. And that's also something that is that would be thought about more if we're thinking about permanent affordable housing um, as opposed to kind of the the destabilized housing market that we have now. When, when you say permanent affordable housing, is that kind of a nod towards increasing home ownership amongst people of color and then that being one of the mechanisms for wealth redistribution? I, I think it's a nod to home ownership, but it's also a nod to ensure that the word permanent is, is available. There's a lot more <laughs> to discuss on permanent affordable housing um, because it's also even tied into kind of what housing looks like for people who are experiencing homelessness. Right. I was thinking about that too, public spaces and who gets to occupy them. Yeah. So how are we, how are we really you know, weaving, right? This policing of public space, those who have been incarcerated, those who are experiencing homelessness and what affordable housing even looks like and what the services are for affordable housing because it's not just a matter of providing a space. And I think that's where architects are, are painfully misguided in my experience. And I'm, I'm also speaking about myself, right? We, we tend to end at the scope, right? We're like, okay, the contract is over. We don't really pay attention to as much commissioning as we can. And commissioning is often seen as a practice that I that really, and, and I know Raphael can speak more to this than I can, but really looking at the systems of a building and how they're operating, but not how they're necessarily operating for people. And so I think architects can just do um, a much better job in inquiring and increasing our scope to understand how our buildings 
our buildings are functioning after they are occupied. Mm -hmm. When you say commissions, what are you referring to? Go ahead, Raphael. So commissioning is a process of making sure that the systems that make up a building work the way that they were supposed to work. Um, because a building is pretty complicated and the systems interact with each other. In, in a house, like, and by systems, I mean things like heating and cooling, lighting, elevators. Sometimes those get pretty complicated and like you don't want to walk into a building and like the elevators don't work, right? Or like the fan doesn't turn on when you switch on the bathroom light and that kind of thing. Yeah, so, and so just an example of that, right, is are we having conversations about whether or not there is enough light in the kitchen for for people like we're not we're not having those conversations with people we're saying the switch works but we're not talking about the adequacy of those services yeah for sure and i remember being an undergrad and kind of i think one of the first times that i thought about the importance of design architecture and social justice was reading about the chicago low-income housing projects that were created that were just these like very top very tall skyscrapers with no greenery, elevators were broken like pretty soon into residents moving in because I guess the commissioning was not done well. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate you bringing all of this into the forefront because you know, like considerations like natural light are actually so important for mental health. And so yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. So you all mentioned that you met at the Justice Architecture Conference, and so I wanted to ask, what is justice architecture and how is it different from design justice? So we met at a design justice event, and justice architecture is what I discovered first, and they're kind of like mirror images. Maybe that's why the words are flipped around. When I first discovered that there was a group called the Academy of Architecture for Justice shortly after starting the prison, the, the prison design boycott campaign, I was so excited because I was like, I found, and then I discovered that what that group is, which uses the term justice architecture, is a networking and like professional association for the architects who design prisons and jails and courthouses and police stations. So justice architecture refers to doing architecture for clients who make up the justice system. Um, so it's really, it, it accepts the status quo. There are people there who wish that the status quo was gonna change, but they kind of yeah. start off being paid by the people who are maintaining the status quo. So they, I, I feel like they haven't really succeeded in changing it. See, Bonet, do you wanna talk about design justice as the alternative? Sure, yeah, I, I had the similar revelation, Raphael. Right, just in looking at how it's defined as a as a it's it's defined as a project type a business right and mm -hmm. it's a business mm -hmm. architects make a lot of money designing more so than maybe designing affordable housing so yeah, I, it is more profitable <laughs> it is more profitable the fact that there's an entire business model that fits into firms and and i i do know people who work in firms that do design for justice architecture and you know justice architecture in quote and i i don't think it's helpful to demonize individuals right that's not going to help me um, and i think that really is can can be quite poisonous but what are the ways in which we're we're having conversations where we're challenging how we're talking about that ending and when that's going to end and how that's going to end so design justice is is really is really thinking about how design can be for more people there is you know a part of what Raphael said too about the exclusivity of architecture i mean there there's just been a history of, of people not having access to design services and i i think one of the one of the pieces for me in, in design justice is making sure that 
designers are accessible, that design is accessible to people. Design justice, you know, one of the definitions is of design as protest that does design justice work is, you know, as a collective, we are mobilizing strategy to dismantle privilege and power structures that use architecture and design as tools of oppression. So how are we, how are we doing that? That's really great. Thank you for sharing that. What is the mission of Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility? And why was it initially founded? Rafael, you kind of, you have already touched a bit on this, but I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to expand upon that moment of the founding of that org. Oh, so that was not the founding of the organization. That was the founding of our social justice campaign. Ah, uh, okay. So if, okay. You're, if you're interested. Yeah, let's, let's hear mean, the full history of it. So the, the, the mission is a three-part mission of peace, environmental protection, and socially responsible development, which was born in 1981 or thereabouts as part of the anti-nuclear movement, actually. There was a mm. lot of groups. And part of the framing of being for social responsible development is it was important at that time, and I think still is, to articulate not just what you're against, but what you're for. So saying uh, we don't want you know, our money going towards nuclear weapons, we want it going towards socially responsible activities. And this is the same time that Physicians for Social Responsibility was founded, which is still around and other kind of larger organizations. So, so peace was always at the core and kind of challenging violence and looking for nonviolent solutions is something that I kind of learned about from some of the old timers at ADPSR. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I joined, I really wanted to reconnect that to the, well, first to the Iraq war, but then I discovered that it was really important to talk about social justice and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not just kind of like international relations. That was kind of some of the evolution of the organization. Yeah. So is there a role for designers and architects to be thinking about the design of different types of systems of accountability, like something like restorative justice or transformative oh. justice? Like, is there a role for designers there? In my mind, if I can go first, like, yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the board of this uh, organization, Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. And as I mentioned, I'm not an African-American person, but it is one of the, the, the few Black-led architecture firms in the United States, actually Black-woman-led architecture firms in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and it was created, it's a nonprofit, to design the spaces that are alternatives to incarceration. So uh, restorative justice centers are, are, are a type that we've pioneered, housing for people leaving the criminal justice system mm-hmm. is another one, um, temporary and pop-up rooms that kind of help build community and, and meet transient needs. It's another thing. But certainly, the, the, one of the first projects that we've done, two that are restorative justice centers. One is called the Syracuse Peacemaking Center. The second one's called Restore Oakland. And there's just, in my mind, such a huge difference between the American courtroom, which where design mm-hmm. is really used to like build the power structure right in front of people and reinforce it. Because you've got the judge who's like five steps up from everybody else. And then actually the jurors are a step up from every, from the rest of the people in the courtroom. And the prosecution and the defense, there's two sides. They each have their own table. They're not allowed to look at each other and talk to each other. And then there's a little wall, half height, that separates the whole public. So we're not even supposed to be there, you know, except as totally passive observers. And restorative justice is a process where, for one, the needs of the victim are placed first. And the goal is to restore what was made, uh, what was damaged, both to individuals and to the community. And like, that's not even in an American courtroom. There's no space for the victim or the community. And then because the person who created that harm is given the opportunity to make it right in part, like they're part of the solution. And so restorative justice processes are usually done in a circle. And like, there's nowhere in an American courtroom where people could actually make a circle of chairs big enough for like just even the smallest number of participants. 
So we're designing spaces where, yeah, there's actually a circle there and the space is for holding a circle. I mean, the, most there is a lot of interest in restorative justice and there's a lot of nonprofits are offering those services. I mean, not nearly enough, but the ones that are, are using, you know, off, half the time you see them in there in like a church basement, you know, that's like, which is great that there are churches and that there are spaces that people can rent, but those spaces weren't intended for that use. And the proposition that we have, one of them at Designing Justice Design Spaces is like, if the spaces were shaped specifically to support that kind of activity, maybe it would be even more successful. Right. So I appreciate this, this envisioning of what alternative accountability systems can look like, especially considering that if I understand things correctly, one of the first campaigns that ADPSR did was to, um, they chose to make the prohibition of designing execution chambers an organizational focus. How do you feel now that there's been kind of a resurgence of enthusiasm for the death penalty? The Supreme Court justices seem very okay with allowing states to move forward with executions that have troubling underlying fairness and trial issues. Arizona revamped its gas chamber two years ago. How are you feeling about this now where it's like at this at once we you are helping design restorative justice spaces thinking about that and at the same time feels like we're, we're regressing on this issue of the death penalty and stopping the creation of those spaces how, how has that been for you as someone who's been working on this you know since that was the initial goal well i mean i think there are it's true there there are kind of at the moment setbacks in the political sphere around the death penalty and the use of execution, which is, yeah, a horribly racist and unjust practice. But I think in the cultural sphere where these uh, politics, I mean, the United States is far from perfect democracy, but I feel like our politics ultimately usually follows our culture. And there's a big cultural struggle going on around the values of like retribution and punishment and cruelty versus, you know, care and restoration and solidarity. And that struggle is far from over, even though like the political struggle, you know, the tables are tilted right now. And certainly part of what I and ADPSR were trying to do by campaigning around not designing execution chambers was to uh, raise cultural awareness and try and uh, give people, you know, different ideas about what it means to respond to, to crime and violence and, and the responsibility, especially of our white male privileged profession in that regard. And in that sense, our campaign has been pretty successful. We targeted the American Institute of Architects, which is the mainstream professional organization. About half of licensed architects are AI members. So they have uh, 60, 80,000 members, something like that. So it's a good sized organization. And they consider themselves the voice of the architectural profession. And they, I think they have a decent claim to that. Certainly there's a lot of dissenting, a lot of diverse voices in our, in our profession, but like they're the largest one. I, I'm not going to doubt them on that. They, after eight years of campaigning, by myself, by others <laughs> at ADPSR, uh, it, it, with, with, with partnership from Designs Protest once they rolled on the scene. Um, in 2020, the AIA, that's American Institute of Architects, changed their code of ethics to prohibit members from designing execution chambers oh, and wow. also spaces for prolonged solitary confinement. Mm. Yeah, this was in the model of like, you know, first there was uh, doctors said they wouldn't do it and nurses mm. and medical technicians. And then a couple of years after, uh, before that, or after that, there was um, pharmacists. There's a couple of different pharmacists, professional associations. They all said they wouldn't do lethal injection. Mm-hmm. And when these campaigns come up, it creates dialogue within the profession. It gets people to yeah. reevaluate their points of view. 
And I think it also gives people an opportunity to realize that even if you don't think this issue is about you, you're like, I'm not a racist person because I just go and design, you know, shopping malls or whatever, you know, that you're that that by virtue of being part of a profession and part of a society, mm-hmm. you do have a stake. And somebody can point that out to you. That's what ADPSR did. We're like, no, our profession as a whole has a stake in this question of death penalty. And are we going to be on the right side or not? And after it, it did take a while, there was a lot of like obfuscating and foot dragging and, you know, but actually it was really, it was really inspiring to see the profession do the right thing. So now, yeah, so, so now architect, AIA architects will not design a new execution chamber. I love that. What role can architects and planners play in advocating for investment in underserved communities? And what is causing the status quo that you all have been pointing to about how like this is actually a rarity in this profession? It's actually quite privileged. Okay. Um, so right, those are two questions, right? Or is it three? What What is the role? Uh, <laughs> what is the role? <laughs> um, and what is causing the status quo? And, you know, I think we talked about, we had kind of already covered what the status quo is, right? Is is who, who, are, who is becoming an architect and who mm-hmm. is hiring them? Architects were not, I was, I was not trained as an architect to ask questions about community. I was not trained to ask about people. Also, it felt very backwards, right? So in talking about, you know, Raphael, your point about restorative justice, my mother taught me how to play musical chairs. I'm sure you know the game. But instead, when the music stops, it's everyone's responsibility to make place for the person that doesn't have a chair. So it ends up being as much fun but it's, but it's a collaborative effort, right? So I, I was taught kind of it's, it's all of our responsibility. And I'm not going to say my, my mother is a socialist, but my mother was a socialist. And so what are, what are the ways in which we are actually identifying this role as a part of a collective effort to make a better world? You know, it's, I think architect, the architect profession is kind of poses this idealistic, dreamy landscape of creative energy. And, and I want to say also financial stability. But I, but I think architects are more and more kind of becoming comfortable or realizing with the fact that architecture is political. I will say I got in trouble a couple of years back for saying that, both in, in an article, and, but, but also before that out loud. Um, and I, I think it's really false to and, and naive um, and irresponsible to claim that architecture is not political. We're, we're responding to political entities. I mean, whether that's zoning or code, right? But we're, we're constantly responding to what is political. But also, as a Latina, my being is politicized. So if I'm practicing architecture, how is architecture not political? So I, I think kind of what are, what are the ways, what, what's the role? I think to ask questions in, uh, about kind of about scopes to look into ADPSR, also DAP, you know, and even within the American Institute of Architects, there are committees, right? They, they can continue to push. I was a part of Latinos in Architecture in San Antonio, and a big part of the work that we did as a committee was to help a district with community engagement for a public space that was being privatized. And that was the way in which we engaged with our responsibility as architects to be in community, to translate, and also to facilitate conversations so that there was actual agency within community members for a public space that was being privatized. You know, in the end, the, the report back wasn't a beautiful drawing. We did, we did produce graphics for it, but really we also made suggestions for funding for programming, for services, for operations. So I think, I think there, are many, there are many ways. I'd like to add a thought because my, my day job, if you will, is as a sustainability consultant. 
and sustainability and also resilience are huge themes within architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, people cite all the time that like 40% of the world's carbon footprint or like US carbon footprint is related to the construction operation of, of buildings, for instance. So, and there's a lot of policy and code development around making low carbon buildings and low energy buildings. I think architects have a role there because when you look at what sustainability was supposed to be when it was created in as, as a kind of like the field of this day, which was in the, the late 80s and early 90s with the Brundtland Commission and the Rio Earth Summit, sustainable development was supposed to be three spheres where there was people, planet, and profit, if you will, or like kind of the economy, the ecology, and uh, equity, the three E's. That's what people used to talk about. And if you look at this as UN Sustainable Development Goals now, which are supposed, which are basically the agenda for delivering a sustainable world, half the goals are about environmental protection, and half of them, or actually more than half of them, are about social progress, equity, gender equality, ending poverty, ending hunger, making sure people have shelter, making sure they have sustainable communities and resilient communities. So for people, every, almost every architect has to think about these issues of energy consumption, material consumption, sustainability. If you try and think about them in a narrow technical way that's divorced from the social issue, you're just not delivering on what the vision of sustainability is. And I really appreciate that the UN Sustainable Development Goals talk about trying to reduce inequalities between countries and also within countries. Because it used to also be that in sustainability, people felt like, or sustainable development, oh, you know, I better go over to Haiti, or I better go to, you know, El Salvador and help people build houses where, it, it, where, where there's incredibly dire poverty. But you don't have to look very far in the United States from wherever you are to find communities that are really struggling and that, that where the built environment is, is holding people back and where mm -hmm. they need that kind of investment. And, and it's great that kind of the leading sustainability frameworks now recognize that. And I think it's a, when you're saying, what's the role that architects and planners can play? Like we can actually embrace the sustainability framework that's out there. Mm. And when we say, yeah, we're designing for sustainability, it's like, well, we're bringing everybody along and sustainability means reducing inequalities, not just designing low energy buildings for the masters of the universe to live off the grid. Right. And that's super important, especially considering the role that the global north has played in polluting the earth and the, mm -hmm. you know, the effects of global warming and climate change that will largely affect the global south yeah, I, more. I do yep. want to add too, right? Our architects tend to, we're, we're generalists. I think there's something really sweet about how we sometimes start to believe in something and think that we're the first people to do it. And, and when I say sweet and um, I'm being facetious, I, I do want to recognize that a big part of being an architect that, that cares about design justice or is involved in design justice or advocates for design justice is acknowledging that there have been movements ongoing for generations that, that are supportive of the demands that we have for designers protests. And so it's how are we teaming with them? How are we empowering? Um, not how are we, how are we kind of taking over? Um, and so I think being respectful of those movements has been something that can be challenging for architects who who want to who want to make a difference, but it can very easily become a performative wokeness if you're not acknowledging those who have come before us. I appreciate that. I, mean, I also like thinking about that because it just makes you feel less alone. <laughs> um, and it makes the task feel easier. Yeah, as well. So you all have been speaking to the role that architects and planners can play um, in underserved communities. And I think one of the ways that this has really come to my mind is important is thinking about school design, and then especially thinking about the relationship between 
underfunded schools and people ending up incarcerated. Can you speak to how school design has played a role in the school to prison pipeline? I think that, um, yeah, for, for one thing, um, there are a lot of really nicely designed schools and decent places in the United States. Schools are not horror shows, but they've been poorly maintained, a lot of them. I mean, if you have a school where it's, and you hear about this in a lot of American communities, where, especially poor communities, where the roof's leaking and there's rats inside and there's no toilet paper in the bathroom, like that totally obstructs the ability of students to study, even if it's a nice older building and the classrooms are have a size. And, and usually a lot of our older school buildings have like a lot of natural light and windows that can be opened and let in fresh air and stuff like that. So maybe it's a maintenance problem. But I will say like the funding that has also been directed towards schools, there's been a whole movement towards securing schools because of school shootings, which creates a kind of militarized atmosphere. Right, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like Gandhi said, you know, if you... If, if you I'm going to misquote him here, but it's like, if you buy weapons for defense to, to prepare for war, you're going to end up with a war. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like you need to be the first one to like leave yourself totally out there, but you also you need to be building peace, not just trying to stop violence. There's a real, there's a significance there. And I think actually some of the design of schools could contribute to that. And that may be something is, that's missing. There was, um, Herman Hertzberger was an architect I heard speak a long time ago, a Dutch guy who designed schools for the Netherlands. And uh, one of his principles, I'm trying to give credit to people who've come before, was that every school should have a space that's big enough for the entire community to gather together. And it is pretty typical for schools to have an all-school assembly, but I mean, some American schools rely on a PA system, you know, so everybody's in their own classroom and they hear it or whatever. So try, I think making a focus of community in the design of schools is something really powerful that can help to try and counteract the, when, when you get stuck in the security mindset, then it's like you want to make the spaces small and make the borders, the, the edges of them really hard so that, you know, dangerous objects can't get inside. Or da- but that really breaks down the ability of people to get to know each other beyond the smallest of groups. Yeah, I, I echo everything that Raphael said. Ironically, we are talking about two blocks away from my high school uh, that had no windows growing up. Uh, we, had, we had absolutely no windows until my very last year they did a renovation. And and I remember a teacher joked, right? Said there's Horrible. a hole in the in the wall, but it's supposed to be there. Don't freak out, Mr. Martinez. I it was it was a, a painful space, and you don't really think about it until later. But obviously, we were affected by that. I will say, my senior graduating class was 500 people, and there were about three white people who were not Latino in my, in that class. Everyone else was Latino, Black, and Asian. And so I, I think it's you can't help but wonder how that space was designed or could have been designed differently. I think to the, the same sort of surveillance questions come up in housing, right? What, why, where are the cameras? We've had mm-hmm. conversations like that. Where are the cameras? What are they looking at? How many are there? How much of the budget is going towards that? And what are the perceptions of safety that go into that versus the perceptions of, of kind of danger threat? What is the accountability? Who is looking at this footage? What is that privacy? I do want to um, kind of think through even the designers' protest um, demands. One of them is about centering community leadership in, in design and planning processes. And I think we can do that better. Back to Raphael's comment about maintenance. What is the funding that's going towards maintenance? So how, how are we preserving and investing in Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian cultural spaces? And that can include educational spaces. Yeah. And then the last thing, like, is, I don't know, maybe we didn't get to describe what design is protest is. Yeah. Tibene, can you share? Sure. We're, we're a collective of designers. And, you know, I, I mentioned very briefly that we're, 
we are mobilizing a strategy to dismantle the privilege and power structures that use architecture and design as tools of oppression, but that can come through through multiple campaigns, right? So we have a set of we have a set of actions. We do that in collaborations. We have done this index. We did a publication. We did a tactile protest. We are in the process of thinking through what a buildable memorial looks like for Black people who have been murdered by the state, um, where those could be located. How are we mapping and identifying loss of land? How are we connecting to youth in design? So we do have Adapt Youth program. We also have a rapid response committee um, that thinks about what are the ways in which we are responding rapidly to, to injustices that are happening around us. So we do have a field organizing organization or sorry, committee. I mean, there's a lot we can do. I think there's a lot that we do and there's a lot that we want to continue to do. I think a big part of this space, because we could, we could list all of the different campaigns, but a part of it is understanding our own capacities because what, what has also happened in design justice movements is you have burnout, right? You have people not supporting each other, Mm. you know, Raphael, Raphael, myself, are not paid a whole bunch of money to do advocacy, if at all. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, and it, that, that's not why we do it. But I think, you know, there is a certain amount of sacrifice. Both of us are white um, and both of us at, like do have privilege in that. So how are we contributing to it? But also how are we caring for ourselves in a way that is sustainable to continue? And a big part of that for me is ensuring that that youth are a part of the conversation and that, you know, we are connecting, we are connecting elders to youth and we are building solidarity in that. So the, there's a lot that that kind of can happen and does happen within DAP. You know, we think about elections, that's what I was, I was talking about, the planning and policy voting guide and of how, how are we crafting, how are we crafting this? But please get on the website. I don't know, Raphael, if that was enough information for you. We're doing a lot of things, right? Sometimes it's very physical. Sometimes it's a mail out. Sometimes it's meeting with Raphael. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's meeting with other organizations like Black Space. Sometimes it is really you know supporting organizations like the Black Reconstruction Collective. Sometimes it's collaborating potentially with NOMA, National Organization of Minority Architects. But I think really it's about uh, operating from this place uh, that the demands sort of consolidate our ideals, uh, and knowing that we can't always hit everything perfectly, but we need to keep trying, and we need to care for each other in that process. Okay, that's amazing. It's an amazing, optimistic, inspiring note to end on. Thank you, Raphael and Simone, for speaking with me. I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon to continue discussing your work. Thank you. Thanks, Yvette. Good to be with you. Bye.